0: Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Shobana Xavier. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, As you know, in each new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, we engage with a new book that has been published in the field of Islamic Studies as it is broadly defined, and we have a conversation with the author. Realizing Islam, the Tijaniyya in North Africa, an 18th century Muslim world, published by the University of North Carolina Press as part of their series Muslim Networks in 2020 by Zachary Valentine Wright, who's an associate professor in residence in history and religious studies at Northwestern University in Qatar, maps the intellectual history of the largest Sufi order in West and North Africa, the Tijaniyya. Using diverse primary and archival sources, some for the first time, Wright locates the life teachings and legacies of Sheikh Ahmed al tijani within broader 18th century Islamic scholarly milieu of jurisprudence and theology and reformist and revivalist discourses, as well as the social and political climate of broader European cr- colonialism and Ottoman control in places like the Algiers. Here, it is the modality of taqiq, or verification, as it was formulated through visionary encounters of the Prophet Muhammad and al-Tijani that led to the formative epistemologies that defined the Muhammadian path, or Tariqa Muhammadiyah, of the Tejaniyya. This path, which is centered on the living legacy of the Prophet Muhammad, then defined Tejaniyya conceptions of the human condition and the Sheikh-Murid relationship, or the master-disciple relationship, but also metaphysical, esoteric, and theological ideas and practices such as notions of sainthood. Overall, the book offers fresh and insights into the wide intellectual and network traditions that led to the development of the Tejaniyya, Sufism, and Islam in North Africa. The book will be of interest to those who work on Islam in West and North Africa, but also scholars of Sufism generally. The book is also open access, which is great and available online. So it will be a useful and accessible resource for courses on Islam and Sufism, especially in continental Africa, um, especially as we're going into teaching online. In today's conversation uh, with Professor Zachary Valentine Wright, I spoke to him about some of his methodological process in writing this book and also more about the visionary experiences that were so informative for defining the Tejianiyam, as well as broader political um, and social uh, dynamics that were unfolding that also informed um, the development of the Tejianiyam. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Zachary Valentine, write about his new book, Realizing Islam, the Tejaniyya in North Africa and the 18th century Muslim world. Hi, Zaki. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, As you may know, we have a tradition in new books in Islamic studies uh, that we like to start our conversation by asking our guests to share something, a little bit of their intellectual journey and what led them to writing this book. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, thank you, um, Shabana, for having me on. First of all, um, it's an honor to be part of the program. Um, So my intellectual journey um, really started in, I would say 1997, when I um, was first an undergraduate at Stanford University. Um, And at that time, I got this undergraduate research grant to go to Senegal, and mind you, I'd never been, I was, you know, grew up in New Hampshire. And a son of hippie kids, and never had been really outside of uh, America. So I ended up in Senegal um, in one of, um, in a place called Medina by Kaulak, which is considered one of the sort of holy towns of uh, West Africa. And it's a center for the Tijaniya Sufi order in particular, but also, you know, long, long um, specialization in Islamic learning uh, going back centuries. So, I found myself in this town confronted with um, you know um, scholars for the, from a very rich uh, tradition about which I, I knew hardly anything about. Um, and so that sort of you know, and then when I I ended up um, actually you know converting to Islam uh, at that time. and uh, and you know so part of this was a, a personal exploration also, but then you know when I when I came back and started to try to research, because I had access to different libraries with the university systems, uh, I, I really found that um, the history of African Muslim identities, you know, seemed to be con- consistently peripheral to discussions of kind of Islamic orthodoxy um, and, you know, the Tijenia being the sort of largest um, Sufi order on the African continent and the, the majority of um of African Muslims probably still practice Sufism in one form or another, this became a very important question for the, um, the study of African Muslim identities, the, um, the representation of this particular Sufi order. Um, and so when I got you know, back to Stanford and started reading um, the literature that was had been published um, at that time about the Dijinia, um, I just found this great disconnection between the people that I had known and come to love, um, and this sort of um, pre- these ch- sort of pejorative accounts of African Muslims in general and Eritrea in particular, um, and so that r- really made me want to um, do more research about the subject. And um, so I ended up writing an undergraduate um, uh, honors thesis at Stanford. Um, kind of about um, Islam and colonialism in in West Africa. Um, And then I went to um, the American University in Cairo to do a master's and learn a little bit more Arabic. And that's when I really, um, and then after that, I got a a Fulbright language grant to go study further in Morocco. Um, And that's when I did the research for my master's thesis um, on the Tijenia. And that later got published as a sort of introductory text. Um, and that had a, a wide reception, um, you know, kind of lots of people found it, you know, useful. I, I, I think I, for me, it was sort of a surface level discussion. The book was called On the Path of the Prophet, Sheikh Hamadji Dhani and Diatarika Muhammadiyah. Um, but it got translated into French and then sections into um, uh, Portuguese and Uh, Spanish and Indonesian and Malayam, and so then I sort of realized that this was a much larger conversation Um, and so then after I kind of you know went back to do my PhD work in more um, Islam in West Africa more specifically Um, and then after I uh, published the the book that came out of the dissertation and did some other primary translations of primary source material that I wanted to do I finally was able to return to this Earlier research I had done in Morocco, and I had some other more recent funding to return to Morocco and assess new publications and that sort of a thing. So, um, and and yeah, so so that was my earlier interest, and then the sort of impetus to really um, write this new book um, was, I think, necessitated by you know my continued access to um, to Jani communities in North and West Africa, um, and my realization really of uh, a whole lot of new sources that I mean they weren't new but they were new to I think the academic community that I had seen Um, and this was uh, you know manuscript collections of very interesting nature uh, stuff that hadn't been published and then also the kind of um, new publications in the field of uh, uh, you know related to the Tijania primarily coming out of Morocco stuff that I you know, was really being published since 2012. Um, and these are really amazing, um, you know, resources also that I was able to avail myself of that I don't think previous researchers had probably uh, had properly been able to do. So that's the sort of backstory of why this book came out at this time and my personal connection to it.
0: Um, I wonder if you could give us a little bit um, of the geographical setting of the the region we're going to be talking about and the figure that's situated in the region um, and I, and I, you do that in the earlier sections of the, of the book um, and that really sets the scene. And as you say, to a context where a lot of people don't know about um, um, the scene, especially in the 18th century where you're locating some of the conversations.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, sure. So um, this is Shehama Tijani, who was um, born in 1737 in an in a oasis town of what's now um, the, the country of Algeria, Ain Madi. Um, and he passed it about in about 1798. He moved um, permanently to Fez, uh, then known as the sort of Baghdad of the Maghreb. It was a center of Islamic learning, as, as probably people well know. Um, and he lived the last 17 years of his life, or so, um, in uh, in Fez, and that's where he's buried. So the um, the Tijenia Sufi order um, is part of a a larger story of 18th century Islamic dynamism and vibrancy that really does, you know, sort of span the Islamic world at the time. So my task was really to think about these connections um, across the globe, and Sheremajani himself, you know, did travel to across North Africa and to Egypt and then also, of course, to make the pilgrimage and connects with a lot of these scholars that have um, intellectual, you know, pedigrees and. Connections all the way into India and elsewhere, um, and and back down into West Africa. So um, my task was really to think about the meaning of these connections, and then also to think about um, how these, you know, how how this um, uh, scholarly vibrancy uh, was enacted in local contexts. So you know, particularly in Algeria and Morocco. And then of course, the, the question in the back of my mind, given that the Tijaniya really sp- spread so successfully into Sub-Saharan Africa is, you know, why? What, what, what about, um, you know, Muslim identity um, as articulated by Shay Ahmad Jani and his early companions really resonated with um, um, the conceptions of, of Islamic identity. Uh, coming out of West Africa, and I'd known enough, of course, about Islamic intellectual history in West Africa to know that um, this is not a blank slate, like there were scholars established there for centuries, and so what were the things that they were thinking about that made them uh, predisposed to, to, you know, accept or receive the, the, the Tijinia into West Africa.
0: And I think the rest of the book really gets into some of these intellectual traditions, mathematically organized. But before we go into some of this detail, I really um, and you mentioned this when you were introducing the process. Um, I wonder if you could say more about like your methodological process, but like the sources that you found in. And- how you went about finding them, but also some challenges that you encountered in um, engaging these sources. Because as I was reading your book, I just was kind of amazed by the, the, you know, the depth and breadth of these sources. So I was really wondering what your relationship with the sources were and some of the challenges um, in
1: reading them. Um, yeah, so the question about um, the, my my access uh, and use of, of sources is a really good one. Um, uh, so yeah, one uh, so of course the you know the 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 Arabic primary source materials first of all important to, to realize that the the dominant conception has been that Sheikh Hamadjani, um was one of these um, saints that never really wrote anything similar to Abu Hassan al shazari who said you know, habi," you know, my my books are my companions, um, but that other you know of his companions, namely. Um, Ali Harazam and Muhammad uh, and Mishri were the ones that, that wrote the primary source material and, and so what's interesting about the testimony of these disciples is that they are often written during his life uh, and he is reading them and he's uh, commenting on them at the same time so, um, but then of course the, the main text the Juwahir al-Mani the Pearls of Meanings has this sort of um, sacrosanct status within the Tijaniya, given that the the Prophet, peace be upon appeared to uh, Shaykh Mujani, according to the Tijani tradition, and said, "You know, this is my book." <laughs> so, um, and it's said to have barakah if you have it in your in your house and, and that sort of a thing. So, um, so this this text had this certain status, um, and I think. Um, Kind of had uh, in a in a way sort of silenced other writings, um, uh, in, in, in not purposefully, but that there you know so that there are there were a lot of other manuscript sources um, that are very useful for the early history of the Tigenia. Um and so of course some of these sources are not written by Tijanis themselves, um, uh, like the um, uh, the histories of. Uh, uh, that is this uh, um, you know, a, a book about, uh, kind of um, written in the in the 19th century about this kind of period um, by a Moroccan historian. And there's a, a couple of other sources, Salawat al-Anfas, um, and so these were very useful for me too because they um, referenced a lot of the scholars that are mentioned in the Juhaymani, but you know, kind of mentioned in passing. So you could get a sense of who these people were and how they were connected. Um, And then there were some other um, texts that, as I I said, were just um, published, um, you know, books about Ibn Shakrun, for example, who was the kind of preeminent elder scholar in Fez uh, when Shayabun Jani arrived. Um, Also, new writings by Hamdun Ibn al-Hajj, who is the um, preeminent Maliki jurist. so these were all things that had been in manuscript form. He was a Maliki jurist of Fez at the time of Sheikh and then um, ended up becoming a Tijani. But he wrote voluminous poetry, some of it in praise of Sheikh Tijani. Um, and he also wrote some very interesting letters in which he references, you know, a very ardent defender of ideas associated with Ibn Arabi. On one Wujud and unity of being, for example, that were very fascinating, and these things were really only published um, by a uh, by by a his name is Ahmed Iraqi, um, by a Moroccan uh, historian that's active now. Um, so these things were very useful, and you know I I've, I found them you know in, only in the last few years, um, and so these were. Um, resources that added a lot. And then, of course, there are the unpublished manuscript um, resources that are kind of jealously guarded among um, Tijani scholars, right? So, um, And one of the things that, um, you know, was very useful was a 49-page handwritten travelogue um, uh, by Shai Rajani himself in which he documents um, his connections with various scholars as he went um, to make his uh, pilgrimage, and this is when he was about 37. So it's from an earlier period of his life, but it um, really kind of uh, throws you very quickly into the constellation of, of scholars he was associated with, what they were talking about, and that allowed me to sort of um, get a, a deeper understanding of what was going on in these scholarly um, connections and transmissions because they were very, you know, very short. Uh, oftentimes, scholars were meeting each other for you know, just a few days or maybe a month, a bit longer. Um, and so the question that normally would arise is, you know, well, what does it really mean that so-and-so got Ijazah or so-and-so got you know, a knowledge investiture from a, from a sheikh if he only met him for one or two days? So these kinds of manuscripts um, allow me to see much deeper onto what the things they were talking about and how important they were for both on both sides. Um, and so, you know, but, you know, of course, the, the, the method So and then there's another uh, account. Was, this was a favorite source of, of mine was... Um, uh, so Sheikh Amjani's closest disciple, um, Ali Harazim, who is also the author of the Jawahar mani also kept like a journal on the side. And, he, um, and in this journal, which um, totals about 212 pages in the, the version that I had, um, in this journal, he records his, um, you know, visionary experiences that he himself is having of, of the prophet and other prophets and other things that he's seeing on the unseen um, kind of kashafat. Um, and what's very fascinating is there it's sort of like a dialogue between. So he's, you know, he's talking about these things that he's seen. He's writing letters to Shah Mardani and he's recording their conversations and. It's it's like a a dialogue about um, uh, spiritual unveiling. So Shah is saying, okay, when you when you see the prophet next time, then ask him this question. Um, and then the prophet, when when Ali Harazam sees the prophet in a, in a vision the next time, then the prophet says, okay, um, now remember what I said and tell it to Shah So, and 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 with the explanation, and so you know, and tell him this and that. So it's really fascinating insight into. Um, well, the world of, you know, the spiritual unveilings, the fact that people are like testing these or thinking about it, um, and also, of course, into the, into the, um, the kind of intimacy of Sheikh disciple relations. Um, so, of course, you know, methodologically, those sources are, um, exist in, in very specific archives, um, and they take years of gaining trust, of course, to kind of look at them. Um, and even when, you know, there be, because, of course, there's a lots of esoteric uh, knowledge that um, certain prayers that are, you know, transmitted only by permission. Um, so my interest for, for this work was not in those prayers, of course, um, except where they had sort of, his, they showed connections between people. Um, but, at, you know, I think at the same time, and I think this is why um, <clears throat> certain scholars of the Tijenia were sort of permissive of letting me look at these, um, they, they also contain very important historical data, right, explaining why um, Sheikh Ahmad Zajani, you know, stayed in Fez instead of, you know, at one point he wanted to move to Syria. Um, and his decision to stay in Fez had a lot to do with, um, you know, the Prophet coming and telling him something, you know. Um, so uh, these are, so I, you know, as I say in the book, these are... Um, You know not necessarily open access archives um but you know they do exist in multiple um, places so you know they can be verified if one wants to go through the procedures and at this you know at the same time i also think it's important to admit that um, archives by and large are not all open access they all have certain um, methodologies of licensing people's access to those. If you ever tried to access colonial archives in any place in the world, you know what I'm talking about, right? So these are not the easiest things to always um, uh, access. And, you know, I, I don't think Muslim scholars who, who hold on to personal archives can be blamed for establishing their own licensing procedures by which to view those documents.
0: No, it's really interesting to hear about your process because one of the things that I loved about the book was the diversity of a literature or texts that you were drawing from. Like you mentioned, from prayers to different treatises to. Um, to poems um, and yeah, and there were some instances where you do mention that you know you couldn't directly refer to the source, but you could refer to another disciple who was perhaps mentioning this particular prayer. So it was just kind of in a secondary reference, um, and so that kind of the the, the primary text that you and kind of present in this book was really, really fascinating, and I I loved reading it. Um, And so one of the things that you mentioned is the the Mohammedian path. And so this is obviously very central to the the Tajani movement and the visionary experiences um, Sheikh Tijani had with the Prophet Muhammad. So I wonder if you could tell us the significance of this and what really made um, the Tijaniyyah distinct in this way as a Sufi order um, that was based on these you know visionary experiences with the with the Prophet, and, and then how it informed. Um, you know, perhaps metaphysics and practices, but which you also argue is verifies and confirms um, the broader intellectual tradition, you know, be it jurisprudence or theology or notions of etiquette that are unfolding within perhaps the 18th century, um, you know, North African context. I know that it's a lot there, but I think all of these pieces are really hinge on each other and really are the pillars of the book. So I wonder if you can unpack some of those pieces for us.
1: Right, that's a really good question or set of questions. Um, so yeah, I would say the the Tarika uh, or the Muhammadan path um, is best defined as a sort of um, uh, in the 18th century as a as a methodology of um, of of accessing the spirituality of of the Prophet Muhammad say, which was thought to be enduring, right? And so this was a, um, I think really a consensus since Jalaluddin Suyuti had um, you know, basically affirm that the the prophet say I mean, is has a life that's baruzaki, like he has a he, he is alive. To say he's dead is not uh, appropriate for a Muslim scholar. Um, and Shaima Jani says this very clearly in um, the Juhu'i al-Manis, and he says, you know, whoever, you know, certainly of course the Sharia is finished, the Islamic sacred law is finished, but whoever thinks that the Prophet Muhammad's madad or his spiritual support for his community has ended with his death as in the case of other dead men, then he is guilty of disrespecting the prophet's rank in a danger of dying as a disbeliever if he does not repent of his deluded conviction. It's <laughs> very, very stern in this regard. Um, so this was a sort of consensus of scholars. I think um, obviously there were exceptions like Muhammad Wahab and, and others, but even um, so, you know, even Muhammad Wahab, uh, just to sort of demonstrate the importance of this Tariq of Muhammadiyah, um, this was the, the idea then that the, the only true Sufism was that directly connected to the Prophet Muhammad. So even Muhammad al in his letters um, references the Tariqa Muhammadiyah in a very in a positive way, right? Saying that these people are on the path of truth. Now, the problem, of course, is that <clears throat> Tariqa Muhammadiyah meant different things for different people. And I think it's a mistake. Uh, although people like Murt- Murtada Zabidi uh, you know uh, the great Indian scholar resident in Cairo, Hadith scholar. He does speak about the Tariqa Muhammadia as a, a particular Sufi order in which he became initiated. Um, so there were certainly like a, a net, networks of people that you know transmitted these ideas, but the problem is is that they mean different, very different things in different contexts, right? So um, the, the the network of scholars surrounding Ahmed Ibn Idris. Um, for example, you know, have different different ideas about Sheikh disciple relationships, and um, then then do the Tijaniyya, for example. There's also an instance of the Tariqa muhammadiyah coming out of India, but no known connection um, to the Tujerinia. Um, so. Um, so I think it's best described then as, as a methodology or a discourse that people were, were thinking about, were talking about, were putting into practice in, in a variety of different ways. And the primary Sufi practice, of course, that we're talking about in terms of dhikr or ritur- liturgical remembrance is simply Salat al-Nabi, right? The prayer upon the Prophet, which would, you know, of course, bring you into increasing proximity to the Prophet, and yeah, you might um, experience a, a dream or a waking vision of the Prophet as a result of those practices. But the overarching um, emphasis was on loving the Prophet and you know wanting to emulate him, both zahir and Wabatan, right, and externally and internally. Um, so this was something that uh, also included you know external aspects of your Islamic practice. Of course, your etiquette like. You know, to try to be like the Prophet in all situations. Of course, that's easier if you can. You're actually seeing the Prophet, <laughs> and, and there are there are instances in which people are, you know, when hadith are related, they're saying, "No, I don't accept that hadith," and they say, well, "Why?" He so, "Because I'm looking at the Prophet right now, and he's um, he's telling me no, <laughs> right?" <laughs> um, so, um, so those, but so the, the then also entailed certain aspects of you know, I, mean, I think there was a, 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 this emphasis then, as I say in the book, on um, returning to the Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, as, a, as a method to make tahqiq, right, um, or an Arabic kind of like verification or actualization of the Islamic tradition. So this was not a disavowal of the Islamic tradition that 18th century scholarship, i.e. the Wahhabia, is sometimes associated with. Right? This was they were not trying to throw out everything and go back to the Quran and Sunnah exclusively, um, but they so they, these were trained people in the Islamic tradition. Shaykh Jani was among them, um, and they they were thinking about this um, you know idea of returning to the to the to the personality of the Prophet as a means of verifying their inherited knowledge, right? Um, so, as I say, this had certain. Um, uh, it, you know, the, the process, tahqiq was a discourse then, or a methodology that um, influenced, you know, Islamic law, theology, and Sufism, the so-called three queens of the Islamic sciences. But it it's a method of implementation would would differ depending upon the epistemology associated with that um, discipline of Islamic learning, right? so. Uh, for for fiqh, uh, for Islamic law, then, of course, you're thinking about transmitted knowledge, right? How do you um, verify different reports, right? And so Sheikh Ahmad then was really thinking about, for him, the the, the, the idea of connecting to the Prophet Muhammad, in this regard, meant, okay, what is the established text, right? Um, what is the nas in this case? And how does it relate to the... Um, To the tradition of jurisprudence. And so he is actually, I mean, we could also call this Ijtihad, right? So he is actually rejecting um, some of the accumulated positions within the Maliki school while himself remaining a Maliki. So um, I think this is a good example of of thinking about what 18th century scholarly vibrancy meant. It wasn't um, in the case of, uh, you know, he wasn't rejecting uh, he's throwing, he wasn't trying to throw out the madahib, the, the inherited schools of Islamic jurisprudence, but rather um, to kind of return to some of these issues and say, okay, well, um, we do have to, after all, connect it to the Quran and the Sunnah, right? Um, and so, and, you know, so, so some examples of, of that would have been, um, uh, you know, the emphasis on making abolition or wudu. Uh, with water instead of make him take, making tehamun. There's an opinion in the Maliki school that um, if the prayer time is about to go out and you fear missing the prayer time, then you can um, have a rock, you know, or some, some sand and make uh, your purification for prayer without water so you don't miss the time, right? And so people would their custom was to have a rock by their bed, <laughs> you know, so if they're sleeping late and they're about to miss the dawn prayer, they just get up and pat the rock. Right. <laughs> <go through. laughs> okay. um, so Shay Aumajani was the opinion that that's not, if you have water there in your house, that's not a legitimate opinion. You don't have an excuse not to. And he would base that based upon the Quranic ayah that when you stand to pray, you should have washed your faces. Um, so, um, so this is an, an instance, uh, about how he's using this idea of taḥqiq um, through access to the Prophet in Islamic law, and of course um, in Sufism, then um, taḥqiq takes on different epistemological preoccupations, right? So there's this, of course, go, you know, going back to Al-Ghazali's idea of this, you know, tripartite way of verifying knowledge, you know, ilm al-nakhl, ilm al and then kashfri. So knowledge by transmission, knowledge by by reason and reflection, rational um, understanding, and then knowledge by direct unveiling. Um, and so, of course, you know if you go back to somebody like Hassan al um Justin Stearns has just done a, a fabulous translation of some of Yusuf uh, Hassan al-Youssi's works. So, so this is a Moroccan scholar of an earlier generation uh, who was really kind of um, it, what, he dem- what it demonstrates is that these kinds of stories about kashafat uh, unveilings have, have started to proliferate, and you know people are perhaps using them in the in the wrong way, and everybody's claiming, you know, I saw the prophet this and I saw the prophet that, and so um, so I think what's going on with the the Tijeniyah is you know it's not one of the things that I, I was subtly pushing against is that kind of thinking about the tijania. Um, in, in the previous literature, had sort of made the Tajiri an exception, right? That okay, uh, it's it's very different than the uh, the previous Sufi orders because Sheikh Hamadijani claimed to have seen the Prophet, and then that's their own that's their only vindication or their only justification for having founded a new Sufi order, right? Um, and so I, I kind of wanted to to point out that this. Um, was a methodology of, of verification that emerged within a larger scholarly preoccupation that Shayamajani and like-minded intellectuals were involved in. Um, and it was sort of a logical extension of this discourse on verification into the field of kash, right? How do you, you know, obviously you there are spiritual unveilings. And later Tujani scholars will quote, you know, previous scholars such as Abdul Abdul Abbas Sharani. In, in talking about how, you know, miracles themselves are not, actually can be misleading, right? You, you can actually have um, a non-Muslim who can walk on the water. Does that mean his religion is the truth, right? Um, and so um, you, you're thinking about these different types of, um, um, of verification in this field of spiritual unveilings and, uh, and going back to the Hadith where the, you know, the, the devil cannot take the form of the prophet. Um, in, in a visionary appearance, then we people are saying, okay, this, um, this is the sort of uh, most verified or most important type of kash of, of spiritual unveilings is to see the prophet. But of course, it's not everybody who's seeing the prophet is, is the same, right? And I think this is why um, the Tijaniya tradition lays a great emphasis on the actual words of, of the prophet in these um, spiritual encounters and you know, is the Prophet actually commanding Shahmajani to to say things? So one of the more interesting narrations in the Jwaharmani is, you know, Ali Harazam saying, uh, Shah our Sheikh used to talk a lot about the things that he would see uh, at the command of the Prophet, but now he's mostly silent. <laughs> um, and so I you know, I, so I, I think this um, I think this is a sort of lengthy answer to how the um, Tariqa Muhammadia as a methodology engenders a discourse on tahqiq, um, and people like Khaled Royab, um at Harvard has, you know, have already laid out the importance of this fascination with tahqiq and verification, actualization, extending back into the 17th century. Um, and when we're talking about the 18th century, uh, arguably the, this discourse is the thing that engenders these new, you know, a new vibrancy or or, a new community, uh, basis of community organization that we're seeing with um, the Tijaniya and other um, Sufi and other types of groups that are coming from the 18th century. And this is an important story. I mean, I don't have to remind us, but, These are the same groups, largely, um, that end up fighting colonial occupation in a series of Sufi-led jihads in the early 19th century, Um, and you know, arguably, also this is a a discourse within Sufism of of kind of connecting, you know, rearticulating the orthodox foundations of of Sufism as the sort of practice of the Prophet Muhammad, the way of getting close to the Prophet Muhammad. So, Um, this is a discourse that arguably affects. Um, or in in, in causes a re-articulation of existing Sufi orders at the same time, right? So it's no accident then that you're going to find the Qadriyyah in North and West Africa saying very similar things um, to the Tijaniyyah at the same time. There are also, you know, Usman Tanforio in Nigeria, modern-day Nigeria. Sokoto Caliphate is also having visions of the Prophet. Um, Uh, And so there are, you know, different Shazali traditions also. So I I think this is, you know, rather than looking at the Tijaniyyah as this sort of historical anomaly, um, uh, but rather, it it is rather a a sort of part of a larger discourse of of verification based upon, you know, this idea loosely associated with the Tariqa Muhammadiyah, perhaps, but not exclusively. um, Yeah, of, of verifying the, the, the foundations of the Islamic tradition um, and, you know, adapting it essentially into into a new time.
0: And one of the things you do in Chapter 3, which I found really interesting, is that in your discussion of, you know, one of the components you're talking about, um, this verification process, particularly through visionary experience, um, you're also saying that this could, this was a mode in which it was cultivating Islamic humanism. Um, particularly in light, I, I guess, of the political context and geographical context of what was happening at this time, which you turn to towards the the end of the book. So, can you say a little bit more about um, what you mean by Islamic uh, humanism in this context and how perhaps it was central to the Tijaniya?
1: Mm. Right. So that's the part of the book that maybe I've gone out on a limb, um, <laughs> and, and perhaps uh, other people would rightly, you know, push back. Um, and so, so basically, I'm. Um, I'm using the word in saying this is uh, Islamic humanism, right? So the, basically the actualization of the human condition. Um, and I want to suggest, you know, thereby, although, um, you know, I hope I've made those um, um, hypo- this hypothesis tentative as it should be, but I want to suggest that um, with the decline of um, the, the political entities in the Muslim world from the 18th century, the late 18th century. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things is that, you know, it's it's easy to read these texts retroactively and say, well, colonial occupation was about to happen or Napoleon just got into Egypt at the same time that Sheikh Ahmadjani arrived in Fez. Um, So therefore, he must be talking the silent referent must be, you know, European colonial occupation. But um, reference to this is really, you know, um, absent from these primary sources, but I there is a, a prominent discourse about decline, about corruption, about the injustice of political elites, about, about the fact that they're not um, implementing uh, Islamic precepts correctly, by misappropriating people's wealth, by um, unjust practices of slavery, um, by making illicit things, licit, right? Um, and by just open practices of, of, you know, fornication and wine drinking and, you know, the normal kind of um, list of, of, of impious acts of which Muslim rulers were allegedly um, guilty of. Um, so this was, um, I, th- I think, a, perce- a perceived decline um, of of the justice of Political, of Muslim political power during that time, um, and um, and so that I think during the, the scholars themselves kind of see um, collectively, I think see themselves as the saviors of the Islamic tradition. They've always they always saw themselves as that, but increasingly so, right? So they've always had this discourse about keeping your distance from the corruption of political power, et cetera. The best of you know kings is the one who visits scholars, and the worst of scholars is the, visit, the one who visits kings, kind of a thing. Um, but this is accentuated during the um, the 18th century, um, whereby scholars themselves are really saying, "We are the ones that are going to guard people's faith for them." Right? It doesn't mean that they don't have any contact with political elites, um, because sometimes they they do, and they see themselves as. Being called upon to justly advise and guide these political elites, um, but uh, so you know. In, in, but in terms of um, this actualization uh, of is of Islamic identity, I mean of the human condition, um, that I find you know that I'm kind of associating with this idea of al insaniyah, or more particularly, that actualization of the of human potentiality. Um, so, so basically I find this an interesting coincidence right that this happens at the time exa- exactly the time when Muslim political power is disintegrating all around the Muslim world um, And it's at the eve of colonial conquest and so it's a basically the Tugenia and like-minded, Uh, intellectual traditions, I think are endowing their followers with an ability to think outside of the box of Muslim political power, right? They're endowing them with an ability to think about um, the continued spread and victory of Islam, uh, even when political power is not there, right? Even when it's being eclipsed, right? And so there are um, some important methodologies or insights that uh, this discourse on the human condition uh, affords, you know, the followers of Shareehumajani. And, and one of the things is to think about the fact that um, there's an essential unity of all human beings, right? That Muslims are not somehow different in their basic insania and in their basic humanity than our non-Muslims, right? And not only that, but um, uh, they have to be respected, right? And, you know, you cannot hold yourself above um, non-Muslims in, in the creation because doing so would be to um, show, um, you know, internally at least that this would, this would make, create you, make you among the arrogant people who look down on Allah's creation. Um, so I think this was, an, you know, and then there are many um, examples later on um, in the history of Tijani communities as they spread in Africa, where they they kind of use this um, precept or this idea to engage with European colonial power, right? Um, and, you know, arguably this is, you know, this engagement I think has been, is complex, of course. There were some Tijanis who fought um, political, you know, fought against European occupation. Um but you know, by and large, this is there's a sort of um, uh, adaptation or at least a recognition, um, that we you know, as long as there's um, people are leaving us alone to practice our Islam, then we can still flourish. And uh, the later Tijani scholar Sheikh Rahman Yas um, put this very succinctly and he said, you know, a Muslim can live for a long time in a place with no faith, but he can't last long in a place with no justice. Um, And so by that, he wanted to think about, um, you know, and he even said, you know, authority is given and taken by God to people, not by on the basis of faith, but on the basis of how uh, of their justice. Okay. Um, So I think this um, emphasis on the unity of all human beings uh, engenders a discourse in Tijani communities. And I don't think it's exclusive to the Tijani by any means, but it engenders a discourse that allows people to think outside of this, you know, Darul Islam, Darul Harb dichotomy um, that would, you know, if it had been followed, would not have, you know, because essentially you have two reactions, right, to the British colonial occupation in Nigeria in the beginning, uh, And one group says, we're out of here, right? These people are kuffar, they're disbelievers. We cannot live uh, under colonial occupation, and they leave, right? Um, So that's obviously not the, it's a legitimate opinion. It's not the opinion of the majority in in West Africa. And if everybody had taken that opinion, then it's, 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 you know, paradoxically, it's actually in the late 19th century, early 20th century, that Islam spreads, you know, rapidly in West Africa. So that, you know, the 90% Muslim population in Senegal today, you know, in fact, doesn't really take shape until uh, the early 20th century, largely at uh, uh, the result of um, the proselytization efforts of, you know, Sufi sheikhs like Sheikh Amadou Bamba, Lajmalik Si, uh, and Sheikh Yes. Um, so it's not exclusively um, uh, a Tajani uh, innovation. Um, but it, I think it proceeds from, you know, ideas laid laid down by Ibn Arabi and many others. And I, and I do reference an earlier classical tradition of, of Islamic humanism. Um, but it's something that the Tujaniya picks up on um, and at a very critical historical juncture. And then um, that is taken by later Tijanis to um, allow them to live and actually spread and um, and in their minds, make Islam victorious uh, right under the noses of European colonial occupation.
0: And I think towards the end of the chapter, uh, end of your book, pardon me, it was really fascinating to see because I think more of the the political milieu that you're setting up is very explicit. And so you have the non-Muslim European colonizers, you have kind of the critique of um, the Ottomans, perhaps, and Algiers and their corruption. Um, and then Tijani is shifting to Morocco at the end of the 18th century. And so they're also navigating, a, um, as you frame, kind of reformism and relationship with Wahhabism. So I think there's so much happening, both socially, politically, and religiously. Um, how do you think, I, I mean, you mentioned Islamic uh, humanism. What are some perhaps other ways in which this context is informing Tijani, uh, be it practice or theology? Um in in this in this moment
1: um so the question is what are some other ways in which um islamic humanism is informing the context can you repeat the question Um, not so
0: much islamic humanism but more of the the social climate and the political climate is informing other practices or theological um ideas that are emerging out of the tijani at this moment um, especially in light, I, I think I'm thinking really in terms of the reformist movement and then the relationship with Wahhabis, which you mentioned a little bit earlier, but it's something that um, I think you'd bring up more towards the end of the book. Um,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I, I think um, rhetorically, um, the initial um, understanding of Wahhabism in Morocco, I mean, of course, there were, uh, there were disputes. Uh, uh, Zayani, for example, came out very strongly against the Wahhabis um, but generally, the um, rhetorically there wasn't much of a problem with what the Moro- what the Moroccans understood the Wahhabis to be saying, right? Which was that you had to return to the Quran and the Sunnah, uh, and that popular Islam had has been guilty of certain innovations that should be, um, you know, should 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 be, um, thought about more critically. Um, and, uh, and so as, as I detail in the book, the Moroccans in 1811, they send a delegation to talk with the Wahhabis. Arguably, this is not, this is not, um, I'm not trying to suggest that the Wahhabis are, are a mainstream movement by, by any means. Um, I think, you know, um, this was a very pragmatic um, gesture. Basically, um, there had been uh, an understanding after several attacks on Hajj caravans by the nascent Wahhabi group um, after they took over the Hejaz in the early 1800s, that um, Hajj was not going to be permissible, right, because you were in danger, you're taking your life in your your hands, and you could get raided by these people. Um, So the the Moroccan delegation is clearly seeking certain assurances that they can send their hajj delegations, right? Um, And to the best of my knowledge, I think from that period, 1811, until um, the son of Ibrahim Ibrahim Pasha, the son of Muhammad Ali Pasha, so-called, liberates the Hejaz from the Wahhabis. The Moroccan delegation is the only delegation in the whole Muslim world that's actually permitted to make hajj. And, and, And it had to do with this Um, um, reconciliation of sorts or mutual understanding. Well, one of the interesting things that happens is that the Moroccans uh, really press the Wahhabis on certain things that they've heard, right? And they force them to recant um, of certain things that are are perceived as innovations, right? One, that you can't make Ziara to see the prophets, that you don't believe that there are awliya Allah, that there are saints or friends of God, right? And the Wahhabi delegation, which includes the king of Saudi Arabia, that uh, sorry, it's not Saudi Arabia, but the king of the Sauds at that time uh, assures him that no, you know, we, we um, agree with visiting the Prophet. We just think that certain people have exaggerated and are making tawaf around, we want to stop that, you know? And yes, we agree that there are awliya Allah, right? Um, that there are saints and friends of God. Um, And so they get them to recant on certain things, but their lingering um, disagreement is really over uh, takfir, use of takfir and violence, right? In other words, excommunication and the related tendency to kill Muslims um, by other Muslims. So uh, the Moroccan delegation basically ends by saying, I don't, you know, we don't support this in any way. So whatever you're doing is tainted by this, you need to stop it. And then we say, well, this is what we're doing, right? Um, So, um, you know, all this is to say that, you know, there are multiple discourses of reform or revivalism, I think Tajjid is a better word here, um, that are happening in the Muslim world at this time, I think the Tajaniyyah is one of them. Uh, Wahhabism is a very marginal discourse of reform in the 18th century. And Ahmed Dalal, I think his book, Islam Without Europe, already proves that point. I don't need to keep beating a dead horse. Um, And he he basically says that the Wahhabis are really disconnected. They're really an exception um, to this this intellectual vibrancy that's going on in the 18th century, even though they claim to be connected to these different scholarly networks. Um, So uh, you know Moulay Suleiman, you know who may or may not have been a Tijani. I think the evidence is tends in the direction that he was um, initiated a, a very important reformist um, agenda uh, in Morocco. That you know other scholars have mistakenly assumed that he was influenced by the by the Wahhabis, but in fact he's you know influenced by this sort of um, revivalism that's happening you know, arguably a Turika Muhammadiyah kind of methodology, right? The idea of connecting uh, Islamic jurisprudence, theology, and Sufism to the, to the Sunnah of the Prophet. Um, so that's a, a, you know, but there are, I think there are other kind of social contexts. I, you know, we've talked about the political contexts um, that, are, that are going on. And I think you rightly referenced this kind of dispute between the Ottomans and the Moroccan Sultanate, the Alawite Dynasty. Um, I think that can, you know, can be overdone. It's clear that Shah Marjani has particular problems with certain Ottoman officials, uh, namely in in Algiers and Tlemcen, um, you know, so particular governors. Um, uh, but he has good relations with the Ottoman Bey in Tunisia, for example, and later to Janis, you know, did travel to Istanbul. and there's even uh, uh, a Mauritanian slash Sudanese scholar that visits Sultan Abdul Hamid II um, some generations later and allegedly initiates him into the Dijaniya, but it seems that so th- the Sultan at that time was taking multiple uh, Tariqa affiliations. Um, so there's this you know, political issue. There are other real social issues that I think um, the the is, is responding to I'm particularly fa- fascinated by these questions because I think that um, oftentimes this helps us understand why people are actually coming to Shajani in real time during and and uh, rather than the sort of lofty uh, metaphysical you know um, elaborations that are often there in the Jowamani and other sources um, you know his stance, for example, on, um, you know, apparently on race relations. Right, he seems to be um, kind of pushing against the uh, marginalization of of black people in his early in his early community, right, and raising up um, people of formerly slave uh, black African um, background to kind of high positions of um, of spiritual authority. Um, He is also, um, you know, I'm not claiming by any means he was an abolitionist. I think that would be an anachronism, but um, he's thought to have spent all of his money on trying to free slaves. We know that slavery was an increasingly sticky problem in Morocco during the time, right? Namely because many of the people that were brought into Morocco were from Sub-Saharan Africa, and many of them uh, were were from Muslim uh, Muslim backgrounds themselves, right? So um, this was a this was a problem, um, and so you know he I mean he he literally curses, um, and you don't find Shah doing that often, but he finds somebody that uh, a slave uh, who is going around in Fez uh, without a warm enough winter coat. Um, and he curses the owner for mistreating that, that slave. Right, That's a pretty serious reaction. Um, and in another instance, he um, you know, has this very interesting statement where he says, you know, I advise you to treat this slave well. I basically, I am the one who has been sold. <laughs> right? In other words, he's creating this sort of common uh, humanity between himself as this illustrious Sharif and scholar and the kind of downtrodden of um, of North African society at the time, um, he has you know these interesting statements about sugar um, being being mixed with mixed with blood. Um, so he you know he's also making certain economic um, statements, and he himself is giving up you know, sugar. He think and I'm you know I was speculating that you know this could be a, a an interjection, or, or uh, something about the transatlantic slave trade. Given that sugar uh, was emanating from, mostly from the Caribbean during this time, passing through Europe and quite literally mixed with the blood of slaves. Right? Um, uh, but there are also questions about tobacco that are, you know, also kind of indicate that shamjani was socially engaged and. Um, uh, yeah, w- w- was involved um, in the, the kind of the, the key issues of, of his time, right? And um, Mole Suleiman, the king of Morocco at the time, actually bans um, the tobacco trade, even though tobacco is very profitable for Morocco um, during this time. Um, so these are some of the, the kind of broader um, social and political contexts of the time that I think You know, um, I mean, think just things about these statements about, you know, baraka ta'am, baraka salat fi He says, you know, that the the blessing of food or feeding people is the same as the blessing of prayer in the mosque, right? Um, And he's known to great, you know, host people and feed them, and uh, at least one of the great, who was a great uh, propagator of the tujjaniya later on, and a great scholar admits that he first came to see Shamarajani because the food was so good. <laughs> so, so I think these are important kind of social questions that um, you have to look a little bit more closely in the primary sources, but they're there if you know what you're looking for.
0: And I, I think, you know, I really enjoyed the book for that reason, is the contextualization that you provide and um, especially across, you know, like metaphysical um, realities. Uh, we didn't get to talk about um, chapter four that much, but on sainthood and, and the connections with, with Ibn al-Arabi and the ideas of the hidden pole. or in the chapter five, we talk about gratitude. So I think there's just so much um, detail in the book that I really appreciate it. So I'm, I'm grateful to that, but I'm also mindful of your time. Um, so I wonder if you could let us know um, what you're working on now, or if you t- hopefully t- maybe taking a break also, but... Um, uh, what we can expect from you in terms of future work, if you have anything in the pipeline?
1: Um, yeah, thanks for, for asking. Um, so what I've done now is, is um, in support of this project and uh, also to plug in with some of the things that um, were going on previously with my kind of academic networks, uh, is this thing called the Tijani Literature Project. And it's basically to produce a bibliographical reference, uh, probably, you know, probably will submit it to Brill or something like that, um, that, you know, looks at the Tigenia as a sort of, um, you know, an amorphous group, and we realize that it's problematic, to sort of close it down like that. But um, that, you know, thinks of, is at least a window into the intellectual vibrancy of an important uh, tradition name, particularly in North and West Africa. So we kind of Creates a, a reference of, of the major authors and what they were writing and where you can find those texts, and we've really seen explosions in literature. That's very difficult, you know. For so my text, my my um, book, "Realizing Islam," was really scratching the surface of that stuff that came later on, um, and so we. A a former advisor of mine, Rudiger Seizemann, had um, started that project with funding from Ford Foundation. He since moved into administration and other things. So the idea is to kind of return, but also to kind of digitize that project a bit more. So I've created a website called Tijani.org, and it's a basic. So and I've created a research council of about thirty plus scholars, both academic and um, Tijani scholars themselves um, to kind of help upload make available um, primary source material in PDF form um, we also have a, a file storage um, service on the back end that we can upload documents to our, um, and share among ourselves and think about creating this um, publication later on but um, in terms of actual things that I'm working on right now I'm actually moving back a bit earlier to um, scholarship in Timbuktu I'm working with a uh, two other uh, scholars to produce a new translation of um, the Tarikh al fatash which was, is one of the two primary sources for uh, the history of Timbuktu. And it, comes out, it, it turns out that this book was actually um, uh, manipulated in the 19th century and things were added. So we're basically pulling back the original, finding the original text, which we're calling the Tarikh ibn Mukhtar. So it doesn't doesn't really relate to the Dijinia or Sufism in particular, but it um, is thinking about, you know, I guess similar questions of scholarly dynamism, uh, but of a bit earlier period, uh, coming out of West Africa. And this is one of the points that I really wanted to make with this book about the was to highlight um, the ways in which Islamic scholarship in West Africa had uh, were really part of this conversation, had always been part of this conversation. And so that I think is a broader continuity to, to my work that's predated the book on you know on the Digenia, um and is now going forward um, also this kind of this fascination with um, Islamic intellectual vibrancy um, in Sub-Saharan Africa.
0: Both of the projects seems amazing, and especially the digital database, I think it's, it's so important. Um, and you know, your book, um, um, as I had, didn't mention during our conversation yet, but is open access. So I think the idea that these sources are um, open access and available to people is also so important. So I, I commend you for ensuring that that's something that you're doing with your own scholarship. Um, but congratulations again on a fantastic book, and thank you so much also for joining me and having a conversation about it.
1: It's been my honor, thank you.
0: So that was my conversation with Professor Zachary Valentine Wright about his new book, Realizing Islam. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and I hope you are staying well wherever you are. And I look forward to having you join me next time on New Books in Islamic Studies. Take care.